Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 4 through 12. Hear God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now... You've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Neil Gambell is a historian and journalist and has written over 700 pages on the early years of Walt Disney's life and success. And as he tells it, he speaks of how Walt Disney, when he entered into the realm of animation and he began to stake his claim in American popular imagination, he sought to change everything in that realm. And he brought alongside him workers, fellow animators and technicians, who would literally change every facet of that process. He sought people who would have greater technical skill in uh, syncing visual and audio. He sought people who would be able to uh, draw and craft animated portraits at a much higher clip so that movement was smoother. He sought storytellers who would transform animation from a simple shtick where a simple joke was told to a medium where stories could be told even eventually to the length of movies. He sought to transform things technically, aesthetically, and even, we might say, culturally. He was a demanding boss, as the stories go. And as he hired the talent from other studios, they found that he demanded that something that could be done once for another studio would be done ten times for Disney, because he demanded excellence and perfection. And he had a vision for how every facet of the process leading to the design product 
would be stellar. Christians throughout the centuries have spoken about change and transformation. Not simply change or transformation of a a product, some sort of cultural artifact like an animated short or movie, but change, whether it's in our cities and communities, our societies and countries, our churches and congregations, change even in our own individual lives, in your soul, in yourself. One of the great debates regarding change and transformation in the Christian world occurred in the 4th century. In the year 413, Augustine, the famous bishop of Hippo, was challenged as he was bringing in a a group of new converts to the Christian religion, and he was discipling them and preparing them for baptism. And some suggested that he was demanding far too much, that he was conveying that Christianity was not simply a salve for the sick, but was also a way for the discipled. That Christianity demanded not simply trust, but also obedience and holiness. That Christianity not simply dealt with what has gone wrong in your past, but with what God would have for your future. And Augustine penned a famous little treatise entitled On Faith and Works in the year 413 to respond to those charges. And in there, he pointed out that to preach Jesus is to preach not only what Jesus has done to deal with the struggles, the illnesses, the ignomies, the pain and the hurt, the sin of your past, but also to preach what Christ will conform you unto, what glorious image, what remarkable mission, what glorious calling He would have upon your life and that He will work out by His Spirit's power. And Augustine wrote that treatise to say that to preach Christ and to lift high Christ is to address how grace changes everything. Not only your past with its pain, but your future your mission, your calling, your purpose. And I think that's precisely what we see Peter addressing in this passage in a very telling way for you and I in this day, in this age. Peter, of course, is writing to exiles. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he's addressed this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion, to what we refer to as diaspora Christianity. You'll know, of course, if you've read the gospel accounts, that Jesus' life and ministry circles around a very small geographic area, what we now know as the Middle East, the realm of Jerusalem and Israel. And it, it hovers there precisely because God's people have dwelt there because it is the holy land and because the people of God have up until that time been almost exclusively restricted to that area. The occasional convert or the person who would leave and move for some particular reason, but by and large, the religion of God's people was tied and tethered to that place. But just some years after the death and resurrection of Christ, we see a remarkable cultural shift. God's people have been dispersed. They've been cast out. Certain policies and procedures that mistreat and even persecute them have led to their scattering across the Mediterranean. 
And with that has come a major shift in life. They've gone from being a sizable people, even a majority in a given place, a rather small, somewhat rinky-dink place in the grander scheme of, of the Roman Empire, but a majority culture in that place nonetheless, to now being a group of exiles, of migrants, of sojourners, of people seemingly without a home, without a people, of folks who feel much more like snowbirds, perhaps, than like those who have a long history in a certain place. That can be alienating. That can be disorienting. That can be quite difficult in all sorts of ways when you find yourself seeking to be faithful to God and yet living in a culture either ignorant of or antithetically opposed to that. Does this sound familiar? First Peter is a word for people like you and me. If only we would wake up and listen. And notice what words of grace Peter has for us. Words of hope. Words of promise. I think we see three things in these few verses. And next week and, and the next few times I come back, I hope to simply jump through the following couple chapters looking at things Peter would have to say about how we live as sojourners and exiles, the elect of God in this dispersed place in a faithful and God-honoring way. And as we look at this text and these verses, we see three things. We see the wide, the wide expectations of God. We see the deep significance of our lives And we see the long provision of God. First, we see the wide expectations of God. Look at the the last two verses that we read, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter addresses the beloved of God. Not them out there, but those in here the men and women, the adults and children who make up God's family, and he urges them. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't hint. He doesn't state this might be nice or cute, but he urges them with passion and vigor that they would abstain from passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against their very souls. We oftentimes think, that sin and temptation are small things. Just one more time. No one will know. I can stop when I want to. Doesn't mean that much. Doesn't hurt anybody. Peter tells us these things wage war against your very soul. The fleshly delights and passions that sometimes seem so overwhelming require abstinence precisely because they do battle against your very soul. Quite apart from how they will hurt others, putting to the side how they dishonor God, they will kill you. And so he calls for abstinence from the passions of the flesh. Now we need to note that that language is language of the wider culture. In our own day, it would be the language of Hollywood or of South Beach. It would be the language of Wall Street or cultural power centers. It would be the language of what is ideal and valued and privileged in the wider culture. 
in Greco-Roman society, the flesh. They were as debaucherous as we are as a culture and society. Eat, drink, and be merry is not a song made in the 1960s. It's a philosophy that goes all the way back to the day and age in which Peter is speaking of. And he's saying the kind of debaucherous excess that our culture amplifies and celebrates and suggests that we ought to view as good and well, that needs to be abstained from. You need to refrain from giving in to those passions. And notice, he doesn't simply say, you abstain from what's out there. He says, you abstain from the passions of the flesh, your flesh, realizing that you and I will be tempted by what is celebrated out there. We fall prey. We buy in. We long for and salivate at times over what is celebrated and sold out there, don't we? Darkness and sin continue to seek our demise. And so we dare not give in because it wages war against our souls. The great Puritan theologian John Owen, as he was reflecting on Romans 8, very similar sentiment found there. He said, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And that's precisely what Peter is getting at here when he says we should abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. But notice, secondly, Peter's got a multi-pronged attack and urgency in calling for these demands of God, these commands of our Lord And he sets our expectations very wide. We might think that he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh that are celebrated out there in culture, and thus, get away from culture, right? Go out to the Everglades. Flee the city, right? Abandon culture. Unplug. Get away from it all. But he presses on. Look at what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Notice that preposition, among He doesn't say, keep yourself honorable by getting out of Dodge, by fleeing the city, by going and starting some Christian state or community, right? By seeking out a utopia out there. He says, no. As you abstain from the passions of the flesh that are celebrated and sold by the culture, nevertheless, Keep your conduct honorable amongst the culture, amongst the Gentiles, those who are not of God's people. This is precisely where we have found ourselves needing language of being in the world but not of the world, of remaining amongst others while nonetheless not being conformed unto others. This is why Paul, writing to the church in Rome, experiencing this challenge in as as large a way as you can imagine. They were in Rome, right? It was the hub of culture of that day. It was the hub of idolatry. It was the hub of arrogance. It was the hub of every cultural product that would lead them away from God, right? It was the Las Vegas. It was the Hollywood. It was the South Beach, right, of that day and age. And he told them in Romans 12 that they were to be renewed, in their minds, right? That they were not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, right? They weren't to flee Rome, but they were 
as it were, to put a spiritual stiff arm up out so that Rome would not conform them to its patterns and practices so that they would be able to offer themselves as living sacrifices, which is their spiritual worship unto God. And Peter tells these exiles scattered all over the Mediterranean, and he tells you and me that God cares not simply what we refrain from, but what we lean into. He cares that we refrain from sin, which will wage war against your soul, but he cares also that we lean into and remain amongst, in an honorable way, those who are not of his people. He cares that we're faithful in their midst, not simply that we're faithful, aloof from them. And so there's a wide expectation and a wide demand that the gospel brings that we would be obedient in this way, as sketched out in verses 11 and 12. And as we'll see in weeks to come, as we work through 1 Peter 2 and 3 and 4, we'll see that the three qualities that are most often mentioned in how one lives among the Gentiles and keeps their conduct honorable amongst others are gentleness, quietness, and respect. That we live respectfully and gently and quietly. That we don't demand our way. That we don't look down upon others who just don't get it. That we don't somehow somehow go after people who aren't of our ilk. And this is probably a rather profound thing and timely thing to be reminded of two weeks after a terrible incident in our state with someone from just a bit south of here who committed a heinous act just a bit north of here. And I don't suspect that any of us know exactly all the ins and outs of precisely what motivated him, whether... It was a mix of religious or sexual or political issues and and precisely how that concoction works itself out. But it's very clear it's someone who is harming others and killing others because they were not of his ilk. And it's crucial to note, Peter calls us to be distinct, but to be respectful. Peter calls us to be distinct and to be gentle. Peter calls us to be peculiar and to be patient. We don't kill our enemies. We don't demand conformity. We offer a gentle, quiet, patient witness to Christ, as verses 11 and 12 say. And as we look at next week and in weeks to come, that has very specific demands on how we interact with people in the workplace and at home and in family and in our neighborhoods, as to what grace and truth look like as we care and love and serve others, not with an immediate demand that they be of our side or that they be like us or that they adopt our faith today, but as we have a long game, knowing that God's not going anywhere and the gospel isn't fading, and that whether it happens in our lifetime or later, God will bring about his kingdom. So we needn't go vigilante style, as it were, demanding that it happen now. Christians ought to be leading the way in terms of civic respect, social gentleness, patience and forbearance with others, precisely because God has shown such patience and forbearance with you and I. And we see that modeled here in the wide expectations of the gospel of the kingdom But we don't just see wide expectations. Notice second what we see here. We see God 
addressing the deep significance of your life and mine. I'm reminded of an experience as a young boy. I played on a a traveling basketball team in, in the AAU world, and we played a lot of games, and there were some very good guys on the team, and I'm not one of them. Um, and, and there was another guy who wasn't one of the good guys on the team. Uh, and I remember something he did. We found ourselves at a tournament one night, and for whatever reason, the game was delayed, and we found ourselves with quite a bit of time to kill, as it were. And our coach, wanting to redeem the time, said, okay, you've got the court. We're going to practice. Go out there, get a ball, and, you know, don't, don't just play around. Don't make a game of it, but practice shots where you shoot in the game. And my good friend, who wasn't one of the good guys on the team, went and dutifully grabbed a basketball, and he quickly and eagerly went to the spot where he more often than not got to shoot, and there we found him hoisting basketballs from the bench all the way over onto the court. He realized he had no significance whatsoever. About half the team would have to be taken out with the flu for this guy to make it to the court. There was really no point in him going and practicing a shot. And so he provided comedic relief. And I remember this decades later. And our coach, thankfully, who was not one given to humor, even found it humorous. I suspect, oftentimes, you, like me, probably are keen to think that your life, your practice, your walk as a Christian is kind of like his basketball game. Doesn't really have any bearing on what's going on. No genuine significance. In the grand scheme of things, you're not a celebrity. You're an ordinary Christian man, Christian woman. You're a layperson. You have other jobs and responsibilities. You have other duties. Perhaps... The significance is for people who are ordained or whose vocation is tied to a church specifically or are in the news. But what I want you to see is that in this text, Peter speaks of the deep significance of your life and of every facet of it. You know, when Walt Disney was seeking to radically change everything in the realm of animation... The reason he was able to take guys and steal them from other studios and demand that they do something that they could comfortably do and get paid for doing once and do it ten times for him was precisely because he convinced them all of the significance of what they did. That he valued it. That he appreciated, as almost no one would, and maybe the customer wouldn't even, that he appreciated the beauty and the glory of the small that he saw the significance of the marginal and incremental, and that they would willingly sacrifice their time, effort, and even ego to get it right and to get it better. When we know the significance of something, we lean into it, right? See the ways that Peter speaks to the significance of our lives. Notice how he names us here in verse 9. You are a chosen race, A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That sounds pretty good, frankly, right? Especially after you consider what's just been said. It's spoken of people who don't respond to God in faith. It's spoken of their destiny and their end. They will be judged. 
But by contrast, you're a chosen race, you're a holy people, you're a royal priesthood, you're a people for God's possession. We often think of the privileges and rights and blessings of that. We confessed earlier in the service the glories of adoption, that we would be sons and daughters of the Most High King. That's a great privilege. That's something to revel in and find joy and delight in. But notice, these names don't just speak to privilege. They also speak to purpose, right? To be referred to as a king is to speak of someone's privilege, but it's also to speak of a very particular purpose as they serve others and bless others. To speak of someone religiously as a priest is, of course, to speak of a remarkable blessing and status, but it's a status and a blessing that is precisely for the benefit of others. Priests mediate the presence of God to others. Kings mediate justice and mercy and order to the community. They serve it. They're an instrument for its good. And we're called a royal priesthood. We're called a holy nation. Not only that, but we're told that we have a very specific purpose here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are chosen. We are given a priestly title. We are set apart as a holy people or nation. And we're possessed by him all that we might proclaim him to others. We see this throughout the Bible. That election is always for service. It is always unto an end. It is always bringing with it a mission and a vocation. We see this in the first great act of election when God calls Father Abraham in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God offers this threefold promise to Abraham. He says, your descendants, they're going to be as numerous as the stars. Your land, it's going to be rich and full and plentiful and bountiful, flowing with milk and honey. Those are remarkable privileges and benefits that you would have a heritage and a home. But he says, third, and the nations will be blessed by you. And the nations will be blessed by you. Abraham's blessing is not something that comes at the cost of others. And it's not even something that simply comes for his own good. Rather, Abraham's blessing and election is a conduit by which others are also blessed. You know the difference between a trust fund and a charitable fund, don't you? You can understand when a wealthy person dies and they set apart their millions or even billions of dollars as a trust fund for some kids or friends or as a charitable fund and a philanthropic fund that will be dispersed for the good of others. Oftentimes, we so sell short the grace of God that we think that God has adopted us that we would have a trust fund. God will meet your every need, but your every need's not just for forgiveness, it's also for purpose. It's also for love and service. 
And we see here that the same God who has wide expectations also gives deep significance to your life. That He has purpose. We read responsively from Psalm 138, and at the end of that psalm, David confesses, and we with him, how the steadfast love of the Lord is shown in him completing his purpose. David's already saved. He's already forgiven. But he continues to speak of God completing his purpose for him. And he calls on God not to abandon the work of his hands. He knows God's not finished with him. Because David is still there to serve and to be a blessing unto others. That the forgiveness, the mercy, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness that God has shown in working with and gracing David is going to flow through him unto others. There's deep significance to that king's work. There's rich significance to that sinner's sanctification. And Peter says, there is for you as well. At the beginning of this epistle, in 1 Peter 1-2, when he's addressing these elect exiles, he speaks of how they have been saved according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. Notice, the love of God the Father from eternity past the sanctification and the washing of the Holy Spirit, transforming them and changing them here and now. But notice, for, unto, for the sake of, the the, the purpose being obedience to Jesus Christ. God not only wants to deal with the sins of our past, but with the purpose of your tomorrow. And adopting you into His family means enlisting and enrolling you in His kingdom. And we see that here, that there's deep and rich significance to the small things. And notice, last, that this is not true simply of the Peters of the church or the leaders of the congregation. You know, I think one of the worst mistakes we can make in church is that when someone is maturing as a Christian, we inevitably shift into leadership training. Or if we want to grow people as Christians, we have leadership training. Oftentimes, growing people will be leaders. And most people will lead in some realm of life, but frankly, most of us are followers in most realms of life. And the Bible, in particular, 1 Peter 2 and 3, suggests most Christians will be followers in most areas of life. It's kind of God's design. He didn't choose those with the greatest cultural cash. He didn't choose those with the deepest wisdom of the day. He intentionally chose those who seemed rather foolish. Right? Notice, as we begin reading in verse 4, it speaks of how you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. You are a temple, you are priests. You offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Those are not statements of a minister, a pastor, an ordained or vocational worker specifically. Those are texts for Jane Doe Christian. Those are texts for every single member of the congregation. Paul says the same thing. 
to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4.12, he speaks of how God does give ordained leaders, and they're terribly significant. They're a remarkable gift of the ascended Christ, he says. The first thing Christ does when he gets to the Father's right hand, apparently, according to Ephesians 4.11, is he gives us gifts of prophets and apostles and evangelists and teachers and pastors. That's pretty significant, so it's no small thing that you search for one, that you pray for one, and that you listen to and honor your leaders. But Christ does that, Ephesians 4.12 says, to equip you for the work of ministry, which is your work. It's your work. It's your work. There's deep and abiding significance to the way in which you display your Christian conviction. There's deep and lasting concern shown by God for the way in which you're gentle and quiet amongst your neighbors. There's ongoing and sustained concern by the triune God for how you bear your witness, how you proclaim who He is, and how you do so in a truthful way, bearing integrity. That's not only true of Christian celebrities or apostles like Peter or people behind a pulpit. That's true of every Christian man, woman, and child. And so we see that there's not only wide expectations, but there's deep significance here. And grace changes not only our past, but our purpose. But notice last, third, that to the wide expectations and the deep significance, there's also a long provision that we're pledged here. We are not on our own. We are not simply given a list of things to accomplish We're not simply given an itemized list of to-dos or of job responsibilities, but we're told three times of what God has done and is doing to bring this to be. See, first of all, that in verse 10 we're told, once you weren't a people, now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you've received mercy. Looking to the past, Peter observes, You weren't anywhere good. And something has changed, and it's not of your doing. Observe in your past God's action. You weren't a people. You you weren't together. You weren't united. You weren't a part of the body of Christ. You were a straggler. You were on your own. You were in another clique, as it were. The fact that you've been brought into the body of Christ is of God's doing. You're God's people now. You weren't shown mercy. You were there walking around bearing the weight and guilt of your sin. But you're forgiven. Your guilt is removed. You know the joy and the light step of one who has been cleansed and washed by Jesus. God has shown you mercy. And so Peter points to their past and shows them the way in which God has been active in their story, bringing them to new life, as it were. Notice also in verse 9, they're called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. It's not even that in your past you were isolated and burdened by sin and you just you couldn't quite fix it. You apparently didn't even know that was a problem right? It's frustrating, I'll confess, when I know I have a problem and I just can't seem to crack it, right? I know I should exercise another day in the week. It just doesn't happen that week, right? I know I should regulate my mouth 
and I shoot off in conversation to somebody, right? I know I should be a bit more gentle or patient in trying to, to teach my child something, right? Or talk something through with a, a coworker. But I get angry, I get frustrated, right? It's, it's frustrating when you know what you ought to do and you can't quite do it. You know what's really scary, though? Not frustrating, scary, is when you don't know what you need to do, right? When you're unaware of what's wrong, right? You've either been it or seen it. I mean, I drove on I-95 this morning. There are people out there who don't know what's wrong with their driving style, right? <laughs> they're cruising along. I don't know what rules of the road they're following, but they're following something, right? And they don't realize that certain protocols and practices are out of step, as it were, with the way in which they do life on the road, right? You and I had to be called out of darkness. We were in the thick, the black of it, where we we literally couldn't see where we were. We couldn't see what was wrong with us. Like asking a fish to describe water. We didn't know what sin and what we ourselves had done to ourselves. God had to call us out of that. And so Peter is saying, as you look at your past, it's not simply that God was able to help you get over what you'd been working at for a long time. No, God actually alerted you to the fact that you had a problem. He brought you out of darkness into light, and he actually showed you mercy and drew you into his his body, his people. He did everything. He made it happen. You're here, and that's of him. But notice third, As we see the long provision of God, we see it doesn't stop with his care for us and our past. It goes on. Verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up together. It's ongoing and active. Who are you being built up by? You may have a parent, spouse, roommate, or friend who says, I'm building you up. And they, you know, God loves you and they have a plan for your life, as it were. But that's not what's being addressed here. This is a statement of God's concern and of God's commitment to you. This is why Augustine in the year 413 could say that to preach Jesus means you must preach not only what he does in forgiving your past, but also the way in which he commits himself to conform you to his image in the future. That he loves you and he has a plan for your life. And he loves you and he has a commitment to your cause. That he cares for your growth, your sanctification, your holiness, your witness to others more than you do. Grace changes everything because it not only addresses our past and all the miseries of it, and it not only grants us great joy and hope for the future and on Judgment Day, but it bears on the here and now, on every nook and cranny of your life, reminding us that even there, Even there in the midst of your family discussions this afternoon, even in the midst of your difficulties at work, in the workplace this week, even in the midst of society and our chaos shown in so many ways, even in the midst of your soul and the battles that none of us know and you just don't talk about, but they're there haunting you. In all of those areas, grace is present because Christ is building you up together to be a temple. Not simply for your own good. A temple's never never simply for one's own benefit. 
it's always a conduit for sharing a blessing with others. It's not just a retreat house for God, but it's a place where people can come and meet God, right? It's not a mountain getaway or it's not a beach house. It's rather a place where God can be received and where he can receive others. And you are being built up as God's temple, as a place where God will meet others through your witness, through the gentle, quiet, patient, persistent, loving display of grace and truth that Christian men and women show in family, in the workplace, in conversations, in their own struggle with sin and their repentance, in their display and proclamation of the gospel, in our worship together. The gospel brings wide expectations, but it shows the deep significance of the purpose God has for your life in its every facet. And God doesn't give you those things, but apart from the promise of his long provision that will never fail or end until the job is done. Let's pray and ask that he would do so. Father, we join our voices with those of the psalmist, knowing that you do have a purpose for our lives. So often, it confronts our own desires and goals, and we repent of them and ask that you would shape our hearts that we would always respond in a teachable manner when you confront us. And we pray that you would always grant us the strength and joy and the peace and perseverance that only you can bring that exceeds the ways of the world and even our own expectations, if we're honest. We pray that you would grant us that kind of patient persistence in hope, that we might be a people of grace and of graciousness, and that in so doing we might proclaim not our own glory, but the excellencies of you who've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. May we be little lights who point others to you and to Jesus above all, for he is the light of the world. We pray in his strong name. Amen. Now as we respond to the